John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and was raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gathering nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we thank you that it's true, that it's a gift of love to us, and we pray that you would quiet in our, in our hearts and minds all voices but your own, that we would be people who really hear you and who receive your word. Um, Holy Spirit, we want, to, we want to see Jesus more clearly and to trust him more, and so um, help us and, and be with me in my weakness as I preach. Amen. Uh, all four of the Gospels give us an account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, and what each of them makes clear uh, in its own way, slightly different ways, is that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he's coming in as a king. He's coming in as a king. We call it Palm Sunday because of what we read in verse 13. When the people heard that Jesus was coming, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And this was a customary way of greeting like a military leader or a political leader or a great king who's returning in victory after battle. The people of the city would go out, they would meet the king, and then they would usher him back in to the city. And often they would use palm branches. There were actually earlier, earlier uh, people who um, came as the, the Messiah, who claimed to be the Messiah, and uh, Judas, you remember Judah the Hammer? Uh, Judah the Hammer, and when he went into the temple and he you know, cleansed the temple of all the pagans, the, the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem greeted him with palm branches. So this is just, this is in the air at the time. It's not just some weird thing like, hey, let's grab palm branches. This was, this was a custom. The people cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you are here for the call to worship, uh, service starts at 1030. Uh, if you were here for the call to worship, <laughs> you might remember that we read that psalm. Uh, it's one of the kingly psalms of David that would have been sung at the coronation of Israel's kings. And so the people then go on to just explicitly identify Jesus as the king of Israel. And so what's going on here? I mean, in, in all of these different ways, Jesus is being identified as a king. This isn't just a parade. Uh, this is the announcement of the king, the true king. 
You know, that's a theme that we can trace through the Old Testament. It's the theme of Israel's longing for a true king, like a good king. But you, re- you might remember that kind of from the very beginning, this longing for a king gets off on the wrong foot because from the beginning, God's people, they say, give us a king, but you remember what they say? They say, give us a king just like all the other nations, just like the other nations. They want a king who will make them great. <laughs> they want a king who will make their lives easier. And what becomes pretty clear in the story of God's people is that um, they, want a, they want a king because they aren't satisfied with the king that they already have in and as God. And so remarkably, God says, okay, <laughs> and he gives them a king. And you remember it's Saul who turns out to not be so great. And then after Saul comes David, and the people hope that he would be the one to bring God's people into real peace. Oh my goodness, that's the second time that's happened. I'm going to stop worrying my... Theory is a blessing and a curse. Um, uh, they, They hope that David will be the one to bring real peace and flourishing to Israel. But uh, even though things go all right for a while, uh, you know, David turns out to be a really fallible, broken king too. He breaks like all of the Ten Commandments in a, in a matter of days. And, and then after David, with few exceptions, pretty much all of the kings who follow are more or less horrible. They lead Israel into all kinds of injustice and idolatry rather than into peace and flourishing. And so eventually, you remember the story, invading armies come, they uh, wipe out the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. And now, in Jesus' day, even after God's people have returned from exile, here they are in the first century, and they are living under Roman occupation. Uh, No king. No king. But throughout all of that, God's people have this hope, and they remember a promise that God has made that one day, there would be a true king who would come from the line of David and God would establish his throne forever. And you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was a hope for a Messiah, an anointed king, who would like once and for all set things right. Rid the nation of injustice. Rid the people from idolatry. Um, Bring true peace, true flourishing, true shalom. And, and behind that, there's even this deeper, more mysterious hope permeating the Old Testament that this Messiah uh, maybe wouldn't just be another human being, but would somehow be God himself, that God himself would return to dwell with his people and be king for his people. And, and not just for the Jewish people, but somehow like for the whole world. For all the nations. And so, for example, in Zechariah chapter 14, we read that on that day, this day that they were looking forward to, this day yet to come, the Lord himself, it's like God himself, Yahweh himself, will be king over all the earth. So that gives some background and context for what happens here on Palm Sunday. Everything about what Jesus is doing here and what the people are doing is pointing to the reality that here finally, is this one. Here is the one. He's not just a wise teacher coming to put on a self-help seminar. Uh, He's not just another prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the true king, the Lord himself returning to his throne. Like, 
this is the one that Israel has been longing for. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He knows the Psalms. He, he knows Zechariah. He's intentionally fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. And, and so he's making in his dramatic actions a claim about his, his own identity. He's saying, yes, you've been longing for this one to come, and here I am. And so the religious establishment can, cannot ignore this. They see the claim he's making um, to be the Messiah, to be maybe Yahweh himself returning to Zion. And, and Jesus is forcing his hand. Um, now they have to do something. They can either crown him as the rightful king, or they can kill him because they think he's an imposter. But they can't ignore him. And they can't treat him as just one more irrelevant teacher. Jesus has now removed that option from them entirely because he's claiming to be the king. See his claim and now ask yourself, is this the king you want? Is this the king? <laughs> Eden says yes, that's good. Um, is this the king you want for you? <laughs> um, yeah. I find in my own heart that there is a clamoring after kings other than Jesus. And, and I wonder if you've wrestled with this dynamic in your own life. I mean, you, you can think, like, how do you respond? How do we respond when we feel really afraid? Or when we feel insecure? Or when we feel unprotected? Um, how, do we, how do we respond when we're confronted by these dark realities of injustice in our communities and among our leadership. Like, so often our instinct is, is to take matters into our own hands and to look for someone, a king, who will save us. We look to someone or something other than God to rescue us. And, you know, we see this all the time in our politics as, as another election cycle begins to ramp up. You might pay attention to... Um, the rhetoric and how it so often employs this really emotive language of fear, promising that if that person is elected, whoever, and, and that, that person is whoever it is who's not in your political in-group, if that person's elected, um, then they're going to destroy everything that we hold dear. And the answer, of course, is to elect the person who's in our political in-group. And this person will be the one to save us from that disaster and to bring the way of life that we long for. You can pay attention to that rhetoric if you want, or you don't have to pay attention to it. You can turn it off. That's, that's one of the beautiful things about the world we live in. Um, but it's not just political rhetoric, is it? I mean, it's, it's spiritual. It's, it, it is the language of salvation and damnation, of destruction and redemption, um, all promised to be given to us through a human leader through a king who we get to choose and follow. The language scripture uses for this dynamic is idolatry. <laughs> um, you know, when we load our hopes onto a political candidate or a political party, and, and we've just seen this play out in so many sad and tragic ways over the past several years, many years. Sometimes our kings aren't so much in the political vein, but they're in the religious vein. You know, so we chase after the ideal church or the ideal pastor or the ideal podcast. We think like, 
just need to find the one who's going to like set me right. Well, clearly, you all aren't doing that. <laughs> Sometimes we make prosperity our king and organize our lives in, in whatever ways we think will you know, help us to get a hold of prosperity to obtain it. Um, but, but so often our kings are more subtle and they're, they're more mundane. You know, they're, they're money or relationships or careers or possessions, like just something that we turn to rather than turning to the true king, something that we hope will give us the control and the security that we crave. And so this passage is a challenge for us because Jesus wants to come into our lives just as he wants to ride into Jerusalem as nothing other than the true king. But I wonder, like, is this the king we want? Is this the king we want? Um, all the people go out to greet him as king, at least initially. But what becomes clear soon enough is that even though Jesus is, is the king they're waiting for, he's not the king they're expecting. You know, in Greek, there's one conjunction for both the words and and but. And and but, same Greek word, which is interesting, right? Because it means you have to do a lot of interpreting when you're translating. Like, do you want to make this an and or do you want to make it a but? Same Greek word. I suggest verse 14 of our passage should be a but and not an and right there at the beginning. Think about the difference it makes. The people come out with their palm branches. It's the way you would welcome a mighty military or political hero. They cry out, Hosanna, which means something like, uh, like, please save us now. They shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so it's clear what they want, what they expect. They have this nationalistic conception of Jesus' identity and Jesus' kingship. They're thinking, finally, here is one who is going to come in and make Israel great again, right? Free us from our Roman occupiers. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And see, I think at that point we can imagine like this really awkward silence falling over the crowd. Because it's not the right mode of transportation, right? Like, what do kings do? What do, what do mighty victorious kings do? Like, they're either drawn by chariots, or they're up on their mighty war horses, or they at least, like, march real hard in a dignified manner that demands respect. Like, that's what you do if you're coming into town to put the Romans in their place. But Jesus found a donkey. And donkeys are one of those creatures that are just like inherently laughable. Right? Like, have you ever seen a donkey up close? They're just funny looking. Uh, they're not like super dignified. They're not impressive. They don't inspire awe and wonder. Um, what's going on here? Jesus gets on the donkey in response to the praise of the people. They come out to welcome a warrior and so he says, well, I'm going to go find a donkey. He's deliberately trying to correct their misperception about who he is and what he's come to do. He, he's um, resetting their expectations. He's reminding them, and he's reminding us, 
of a prophecy in Zechariah. In chapter 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see this family? It's like Jesus is saying, yes, I am the king you've been waiting for, but no, I am not the king you've been expecting. I'm not that kind of king. I am the king of Israel, um, but not only the king of Israel, I'm the king of the whole world. And the way I'm bringing my kingdom, Jesus is saying, is not through political maneuvering and not through military might, but it's actually through like extraordinary apparent weakness and humility. You see, he says, I'm bringing my kingdom, but I'm bringing it in a way of peace. And so what we have on Palm Sunday is like at the very moment when Jesus is claiming the authority of the king, he's also demonstrating what kind of king he is. You know, most kings reject vulnerability. And this one embraces it. And most kings would pick a mighty stallion, but this, this one chooses a little donkey. Um, he's a different kind of king. Jonathan Edwards, he once preached a sermon in which, he, in which he said that in Jesus Christ, we find an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. An admirable, what is it? Conjunction of diverse excellencies. Uh, it's a really fancy way of saying that in Jesus Christ, we find one whose character and whose qualities are just combined in this uniquely beautiful way. Edwards was led to that observation as he was re reflecting on two verses that we remembered last week. And there are two verses, some of you might remember that when we, years, a few years ago when we went through the book of Revelation, I made some crazy claim like these verses are not just the meaning of the Bible, but they're um, the meaning of your life and even the meaning of the entire world. And I don't know, I think I might still say that. I don't know that my mind has changed. I mean, a lot of times I don't agree with myself a few days later, but I think, I think that I'm still, I think that I'm still uh, thinking that this might be the key to everything. Where John gets this vision of the throne room of God and the heart of the throne room of God. And he's told, behold the lion of Judah, and he turns and he sees the lamb. He sees the lamb slain with its neck slit and its wool matted with blood. And, and that is what Edward says is just um, like inexplicably wonderful and beautiful and we'll probably spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of it. The, the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion and that this is Jesus Christ, a gentle lion, a conquering lamb, um, a king who is a humble king. He's a, he's a donkey riding king. 
And I wonder if this is the king that you want. A king who saddles up, not a mighty stallion, but a humble donkey. Like, can you bear to follow a king like that? Leslie Newbigin writes this. He says, The sentence, Jesus is Lord, is a true confession, but only if the subject, Jesus, this is a little technical, only if the subject, Jesus, has taken control of the predicate, Lord. Only if sovereignty is defined by Calvary, only if lordship is understood in terms of washing another's feet. And what he's saying, in other words, is that um, when it comes to Jesus, we can't come to Jesus like already having all of our preconceptions of what it means to be king and then loading those onto who Jesus is. No, we have to come to Jesus and then say, hey, you show me. You define what it means for you to be king. And so here he is sitting on a donkey and riding down into Jerusalem. Like, he's the only one who knows that at the end of this road is not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He's the only one who knows that he won't be seated up on a throne, but he'll actually be nailed to a cross. He knows that from this point on, everything before him is betrayal and abandonment and torture and death. And still he rides that little donkey down into the city. And that's not what I would have done. And my guess is you wouldn't have done that either. You probably would have turned that donkey around and galloped off into the sunset. <laughs> but Jesus rides down. This is what it looks like, family, for him to be king. Um, this is how he brings his kingdom. It's not by killing a bunch of Romans. It's not by like defeating our political enemies. It's actually by almost like he just surrenders himself over to them. He says, do your worst. Because, because I'm after something that's much better and bigger and deeper. This is how our king loves us. Uh, this is how he rules over us. By, by giving up his life for us. By, by receiving the crown. By, by going to the cross. Um, by going to defeat our enemies, but our real enemies. Our real enemies. Sin and death and evil itself. Our hearts are always clamoring for a king, and I wonder if your heart is clamoring for this king. Family, see how good he is. You know, all the other kings out there, they take, but here's one who gives. All the other kings that we're tempted to turn to, they enslave us. But this one sets us free. This one serves us. Um, all the other kings, like the higher they get, the more powerful they get, the more they ignore the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and those on the margins. And here's a king who becomes weak and poor and marginalized for us. All the other kings say, your life for mine, and here's one who says, I am pouring my life out for you. 